This week on Miranda Warnings, we're very pleased to have Carrie Cohen, who's a partner at Morrison and Forster, where she works on investigations and white collar crime. She's the former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, where she served as lead prosecutor in the case against former New York State Assembly Speaker Sheldon Silver. The big mistake he made was he engaged in a quid pro quo bribe scheme in two different ways. He traded state grant money for lucrative referrals to his law firm of mesothelioma patients, for which he got paid a referral fee. And then on the real estate side, he, you know, voted on legislation at the same time that he was leaning on the real estate developers who depended on him to vote, at least not horribly, against them. She's also the former chair of the New York State Bar Association's Task Force on Domestic Terrorism and Hate Crimes. Welcome, Carrie. Great to be here with you, David. It's very great to have you here with us on Miranda Warnings. Now, you've been at Morrison and Forster since you left the U.S. Attorney's Office in 2016. Tell us, uh, what's the, the biggest adjustment going from a prosecutor to private practice? Probably one of the biggest adjustments is learning how to let other people make my binders for trial. And, you know, in the government, you don't have that many resources. And of course, at a private firm, you have a lot of people who are willing to help you and want to help you. And so learning to let go of making my own binders was one of the hardest things. But I will say by now, I'm almost five years into it. I have fully embraced other people helping to make my binders. Well, binders are very personal. I am a I am a binder person at trial, and I don't care how much I've got in the computer and the laptop and how easy it's accessible. Um, a good binder uh, has gotten me through every trial that I've been in. Amen to that. So, so what's your what's your binder? Me- is it is it color coded? Is it numbered? Is it lettered? Uh, I don't want to give away the secret sauce, right? Okay. <laughs> every good trial lawyer has their secret binder method. It's very personal. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hoping we could talk today a little bit about uh, the Manhattan District Attorney's investigation into Donald Trump's uh, possible bank fraud and, and tax fraud. Uh, you've had experience, obviously, with high profile cases as assistant U.S. attorney, uh, where you were lead prosecutor in this case against Sheldon Silver. Obviously, you're not involved in, in this case against Trump, but Maybe you can you can walk us through uh, what the prosecutor is going through in a high profile case like this. So, for example, um, you know how is this decision made initially to start an investigation like this? Does it come in from a third party? Is it based upon you know news reports that you see? So, you know, any investigation, high profile or not, comes into the government in different ways. Um, Of course, you know, the government does not hopefully go on a fishing expedition. There's some basis to believe there's potential wrongdoing, criminal wrongdoing out there, but it can come in a variety of ways. It can be a a newspaper article from a credible, you know, record. It can be a tip from an undercover. It can be a tip from law enforcement. It can be um, disclosures that are made to the public in public filings in the public corruption space, especially. So there's, there's a lot of different ways that investigations start. Um, and I would say, you know, high profile or not high profile, I think a responsible prosecutor tries to treat every case the same in that a prosecutor has awesome powers and you have to be 
extremely, extremely careful, you know, not to abuse that power in any way. So whether it's a high profile case or, you know, a buy and bust street crime, you have that same responsibility um, to the people and to, you know, the potential defendants. So I would say on, look, there's obviously when there's a high profile case and Manhattan District's attorney's office over the years has brought many high profile cases. And so, you know, luckily it's an office that's used to investigating both um, targets that are high profile in the public eye and just high profile matters. So they have, you know, vast experience dealing with the press and dealing with the pressures that come with a high profile investigation. But I think, you know, so far, at least, I don't think we've seen a lot of leaks coming out of that office, which, of course, is a good thing, because an investigation is just that. It's an investigation. It may ultimately lead to charges being brought if the prosecutor believes they have proof beyond a reasonable doubt of a crime. But investigations can often be closed with no action. And the problem when an investigation is in the public eye is, you know, a rush to judgment and trying the matter in the press when there's actually only allegations, right? And you have constitutional rights of the accused to be extremely concerned about. So generally, if a, let's say you, you, you get a tip or you see something that appears like it, it might be criminal conduct in, a, in an investigative report and you decide to begin an investigation, is that uh, kept uh, confidential or is it, is it announced or is it depending on the circumstance? I mean, almost always, especially when you're using grand jury process, um, it is kept confidential and secret. Um, it is not at all the Manhattan DA's or the U.S. Attorney's Office at the Southern District, or even when I was at the New York AG's office on the criminal side, the practice to announce issuances of grand jury subpoenas. And in fact, the government on the criminal side, you know, keeps those as, conf- you know, they are not the ones that confirm ever I don't believe that there's a grand jury subpoena out there. I see. And then at at what point does the individual know that they're being investigated? So again, it depends investigation to investigation. There are a lot of investigations that are done covertly, um, meaning the target of the investigation doesn't know for a very long time, often sometimes until the morning of the arrest, that they are under investigation. I would say that's more typically true when the target is of some danger, you know, to the public, to himself, to the victims of the crime, um, you know, in sort of the more white collar cases, fraud cases, public corruption cases, tax cases, there tends to be some process that the target of the investigation gets at some point along the way. And it may be much farther down the line when the prosecutors have believe they have, you know, sufficient evidence of a crime that they will approach the target and say, you know, if we're wrong, now is the time. Like, come, you know, come talk to us. Um, and almost most offices afford the defendant that right, because, of course, maybe the prosecutors miss something or maybe there is an explanation for what looks potentially criminal that moves into the realm of not criminal. And as a prosecutor, you would rather know that before you charge someone with a crime than after. Right. So so you, you do the you do the investigative work and it looks like it's leading towards. Uh, a, a crime that you're going to at least pro- uh, attempt to prosecute, uh, and then sometimes in those instances you you go to the potential defendant and and say, look, is there is there an innocent explanation for this or some something somewhere in the middle, perhaps? Um, when you're when you're dealing with uh, a, a 
defendant that is, you know, a high profile politician. Are there additional obstacles that you face or maybe, you know, people people clam up, don't want to talk, or that there might be some, you know, outside pressure? Is, is, do you have any experience uh, that you can share with that? Sure. I think oftentimes when you're investigating um, powerful elected officials, some of the people who may have knowledge um, of whatever scheme you are investigating tend to be people who work for or surround that powerful person. And, you know, a lot of times they are extremely reluctant um, for fear of, you know, being fired at their job or other um, actions being taken against them if they cooperate at all with law enforcement. I, I don't think that's unique to the public corruption space or to high up elected officials. I think you can look at all different types of crimes and people often are reluctant to cooperate against someone who has some power over them. And whether it's moral power or family connections or employment, you know, power over their employment, you know, it really depends. But, you know, the government on the criminal side has very powerful tools to get people to be cooperative, right? They have grand jury subpoena power. Um, unless the person, you know, has a Fifth Amendment right, they have to talk. They also, a lot of people around someone who's being investigated, when it becomes clear that a crime probably has been committed, you know, there's a little bit of a rush to get on the right side of the government, meaning if you have a little bit of knowledge, but you weren't really criminally involved to try to get a non-prosecution agreement in exchange for telling the government what you know, try to get immunized if you have exposure, but you're really not the main player. You know, so there's a lot of different things at play with regard to individuals who are witnesses or witnesses with some exposure. And in looking at the Trump case, you know, I'm not uh, a prosecutor, but uh, in reading uh, the reports that have come out, um, it seems certainly incriminating uh, as far as the the bank fraud and tax fraud. What's your take on the strength or potential strength of that case? Obviously, you haven't seen all the the, the tax records and and what the the, the uh, district attorney um, has had access to, but just from the public reports, uh, where do you think there's some uh, vulnerability, um, potentially? So I think one thing I've learned over my years um, as the prosecutor and now my years in private practice is to never try to predict or put any guesswork on what the government knows or doesn't know, or what they'll be able to prove or not prove, because there's just so much that we don't know. Um, you know, Mark Pomerantz was brought in as special counsel to at the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. He's, you know, obviously a legend of the criminal defense bar, um, was a former prosecutor back in the day himself. I mean, he is the gold standard in a lot of ways in my field. And so I'm sure that, you know, if there's a crime to get to, he will be able to get to it. Now, uh, you know, talking about the this Sheldon Silver case, just to use it as a springboard, you know, in politics, there's a lot of gray areas. Um, where some things maybe don't seem right, but they're not necessarily illegal. Um, certainly, you know, Sheldon Silver was a master at uh, the political field. Um, but, you know, there was a tipping point where he went from the gray area to the, to the to criminal conduct. Where was that tipping point? Like, what was the big mistake that, that Silver made? The big mistake he made was he engaged in a quid pro quo bribe scheme in two different ways. He traded state grant money 
for lucrative referrals to his law firm of mesothelioma patients, for which he got paid a referral fee. And then on the real estate side, he, you know, voted on legislation at the same time that he was leaning on the real estate developers who depended on him to vote, at least not horribly against them with regard to the legislation to use his friend for their tax tertiary work, for which he also got a referral fee. So that's when it takes it out of the realm as politics as usual into the world of criminal bribery. Right. Being on the inside as a prosecutor, um, and now you're uh, working on, you know, white collar crime defense. Um, what are the lessons you learn from being a prosecutor that you bring to the defense side? I, I, you know, when my kids, my kids played soccer, you know, I would say, you know what, spend one day in the goal uh, as goalie. So you know what it feels like, you know what that goalie is thinking. So um What's the what's the lesson that you bring now to the table um, as a, a private practitioner? Yeah, that's a great analogy. It's funny. My kids play soccer and they also play ice hockey. And I will say I'm not as thrilled to put them in goal on a <laughs> hockey rink as I am in a soccer field. Um, but, you know, I think having been a prosecutor and then on the defense side, you have a great understanding for how prosecutors think. And that is, of and how they can sometimes, you know, they have one view of the world sometimes. And as a defense attorney, a large part of my job is explaining to the prosecutors that something that looks bad or looks like it may be untoward, unethical, perhaps on the, over that line into criminality is actually not. And that the criminal intent wasn't there or the facts are not exactly as the prosecutors think or the email or the text or the WhatsApp chat is not exactly as it seems. Um, and that's a, a large part of what I do is helping the government understand um, in a broader way the gray area. Right. Now, you've been very active in the New York State Bar Association. You served as chair on the task force on uh, domestic terrorism and hate crimes that was formed by past president Hank Greenberg. Um, and you came up with, uh, produced a report that came out in June of 2020. Um, tell us what the your, your findings uh, were with respect to uh, domestic terrorism in the U.S. Sure. So just to also give a little context for that report, um, President Greenberg appointed me as chair back in January of 2019, so a year before the events at the Capitol. And it was really in the response to the large increase in hate crimes that we saw, particularly in New York and particularly in New York City. And just to give you one stat, from January to October 2019, just New York City, there was a 33% increase in reported hate crimes. I mean, that is astronomical. There was, of course, um, a large increase in hate crimes against people of Asian descent, you know, connected to bias related to COVID-19 and its potential origins, but there was just um, sort of a lot of instances of not only very serious violence motivated by hate, but also act of vandalism, things that really terrorize a community that are based on hate. Um, hate of people who are in some, we'll call it a protected class. Um, and the state legislature actually in January passed, you know, in honor of Newman, the Newman Hate Crimes Act. 
And so it was sort of with that background that our task force was formed. Um, and I was extraordinarily lucky um, to have a task force comprised of really leaders um, in criminal justice reform, both on all sides of the aisle. We had prosecutors, defense attorneys, civil rights attorneys, um, sitting judges, uh, retired judges, um, people from different state agencies. It was really um, an amazing, amazing task force of exactly the type of people who you would want to think hard about, you know, looking at this huge surge in domestic terrorism and hate crimes. What is it that the New York State Legislature can do? What is it that law enforcement should be doing differently to try to combat the surge? Um, so, you know, a couple of things came out of our report, which, you know, we issued in fairly short order and was adopted by the House of Delegates at their June um, 2019 meeting. So it was, you know, there was the Newman Hate Crimes Act, just so you all know, did create its own task force that has appointees from um, the governor and the legislature. And so a lot of what we recommended was areas that that hate crimes task force should look further into. So we tried to give the um, newly established hate crimes task force sort of a roadmap. We tried to do some of the homework for them because they are newly created as of December of 2019. So we were trying to lay groundwork for them so they wouldn't have to sort of start from ground zero. Um, some of the things we, we recommended was we looked at ways if there was more possible legislation. Um, I mean, basically we found the legislation, at least in New York State, um, was fairly adequate. And sometimes when you tinker too much with legislation, you can make things worse um, in unintended ways. But we did think, for example, in order to get a wiretap, a hate crime is not an enumerated statute that allows you to get a wiretap under New York state law. So that was one legislative fix we recommended. Um, we also mandatory counseling when someone is convicted of a hate crime. We did find that although, you know, there are horrible acts of heinous violence and murder committed because of hate, the large majority of a lot of the hate crimes are sort of more low level crimes, property vandalism, harassment, low level assault. Um, and that mandatory counseling really, hopefully we thought would be helpful in that you might be able to, you know, get people to understand why their sort of hate-filled views or whatever's motivating their conduct, you know, needs to be changed. And so we tried to focus on part of the problem and come to solutions on it. Um, we also talked about civil, on the civil side of things, improvements to the Civil Rights Act and um, amendments to New York's not-for-profit law um, and other corporate laws that would allow uh, recovery of property that's connected to supporting groups that support terrorism. I see. Now, we hear the term domestic terrorism a lot lately after the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th, and obviously the uh, committee, uh, the task force that you were working on was addressing uh, these issues, you know, uh, for years before. Uh, so it's not something new. But um, tell us, when we hear the word domestic terror or the phrase domestic terrorism, what's the dis difference between a domestic terrorist and someone who's just a plain criminal? So, I mean, someone who's a criminal, for example, if you vandalize a building and you put graffiti on of, you know, a picture of a boat, right? That's not a hate crime. If you're, if you're a graffiti 
maligns a protected class, if it's a swastika, if it's a hanging noose, if it's any reference um, to any member of a protected class, then it is not only vandalism, but it is also a substantive hate crime. And so I think the crime itself, you have to prove it is motivated by hate, hate towards a protected class, not, you know, hate towards I don't like my neighbor. Right. And so when we're when we're when we're talking about, for example, the insurrectionists on January 6th, they've been referred to as domestic terrorists um, rather than just, you know, trespassers. Um, and so w- what is it about their conduct that moves that into the realm of domestic terrorism? So I think we all um, watched the in horror. Um, the events on January 6th, and in particular, the marching of the Confederate flag through the halls of our Congress. Um, And many people had similar um, emblems on their shirts, on their hats, and what they were saying, right? That would be um, evidence that they were motivated by hate towards a particular group, protected group. So it's it, it's not necessarily the the crime; it's the message that's conveyed uh, by the uh, by the uh, perpetrator. Yeah, it's it's the intent, right? I mean, all all criminal statutes deal with criminal intent, right? And so it's why did you do this crime? What was your intent? And if your intent intent was a bias towards a protected class, it can be a hate crime. And how right. do you prove that? I think you know there's a lot of um, Thankfully, a lot of resources being poured into this by DOJ and the FBI and all of federal law enforcement, really, towards um, investigating different individuals and looking into their background and looking into their um, espoused views to figure out if their crimes related to January 6th were motivated, if they could prove that they were motivated by hate towards a particular protected group. Right. So we have uh, a new U.S. Attorney General now, Merrick Garland, confirmed by the Senate. Do you have any any thoughts uh, on Merrick Garland and how he might run the Justice Department? So I think anyone who watched, um, as I did, um, Merrick Garland's confirmation hearings was breathing a huge sigh of relief. Um, He was exactly what I believe a public servant and a public prosecutor should be. And he embodies um, all of the sort of traditions of law enforcement that are good, right? Serving the people, doing the right thing for the right reason, without fear or favor, with no political agenda, following the facts where they lead. And you heard him, I think, say almost all of those words at some point during his confirmation hearing. And of course, his you know career history embodies that. So I think um, it was extremely important for Maine Justice to get an attorney general um, of Merrick Garland's stature um, and beliefs. Um, and I think he will lead that office in a great way. Well, Carrie Cohen, I wanna thank you for uh, being with us here on Miranda Warnings. I wanna thank you for your service to the causes of justice as an assistant US attorney and your continued service to the profession through your work, including your work with the New York State Bar Association. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me, David. It's really great. Um, you know, these are obviously very serious topics. We have a somewhat lighthearted feature on Miranda Warnings called Music, Book, or Movie. So you can tell us what's helping get you through uh, this quarantine. Uh, I think I'll go with 
I don't know, movie, I'll go with series. There have been, I think, such great TV on Netflix, such great series. Um, I tend to watch things that are related to law or crime. Um, I just finished very lighthearted, um, very fun, but on Netflix, I'll put a shout out to the flight attendant. Okay, flight attendant. Uh, um, uh, it's popular. Uh, let me ask you this. Um, is there a series that you think accurately depicts what it's like to be a prosecutor? I think there are parts of every series that um, are accurate, and then there are lots of parts that are not, right? I don't think we ever sit and watch the prosecutors do what a, lo a large portion of a prosecutor's job is, which is to sit looking through endless pages of documents. Yeah, that, that won't make for a compelling Netflix uh, series. No, <laughs> it would not. But that is a large part, you know, you, especially right in the uh, white collar space, you do a lot of following the money, right. which is a lot of reviewing bank records and paper. Well, Kerry Cohen, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, stay well and, and we'll talk again. If you like Miranda Warnings, you have the right to rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.